We're continuing in our series, um, Truths uh, for Tough Times. And today we are coming to the difficult but extremely comforting biblical truth concerning God's providence. When we talk about biblical providence, we're, we're, we're talking about that basic idea that God holds the whole world in his hands. He is the divine author. He is dramatically and epically working all things for his glory and our good. God is working. He's working out all things for the good, and and we'll see how that's qualified. But that's our our general principle today. So today we're going to use Romans 8.28. That's where we're going to start, 28 and 29. This is our anchor passage. Um, Within the scope of Romans uh, chapter 8, um, it's, the, it's a conclusion, actually, to what comes before in the first 27 verses. This chapter has been described as a hymn of providence. And um, just some of the important themes, just so you can get a sense of, of just the, the glorious nature of Romans chapter 8. In Christ, there is now no condemnation, verses 1 through 8. We've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 9 through 11. The Spirit gives people the assurance that they are both his adopted children and heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Those who experience suffering on account of their faith in Christ will one day share in his glory, a glory that is so marvelous that in comparison with it, hardships fade away into nothingness. They will one day dwell in a restored new heaven and a new earth for which even the creation now is in some sense groaning and and it's yearning for this to take place. In the present life, we can depend on the Spirit of God to help us in our weaknesses. These are all the themes that lead up to our passage in Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29. Would you stand for the reading uh, and the hearing of God's word. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Would you bow your heads with me? Lead us, O Lord, in your truth. Teach us and grant that beyond all our faithless expectations and weak desires, that we may find you in your word. And being strengthened, go go on our way with gladness. Lord, we ask that you would grant this for your, your namesake. Amen. You may be seated. So just to begin with some uh, basic definitions and concepts, um, let's just come back to that theological term. It's a, it feels old. It's a, a term that doesn't get used so much in, in modern day life. Um, it is that term of providence. What is providence? Well, our confession, the Westminster Confession, defines it just, it, it kind of summarizes the idea with these words. 
God who created everything and upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by his completely wise and holy providence. And then uh, the confession continues. Just as the providence of God in general extends to every creature, so in a very special way it takes care of his church and orders all things for its good. That is, for the good of the church. So when we talk about providence, we're just talking about this idea that God uh, is actively governing all the events and affairs of the world from uh, the, the, the great uh, effects to the very details of life. And he's doing so with an aim or with a purpose. And, and at least part of that aim is the good of his people, the good of his church, and also then to the praise of his glorious grace. Calvin, um, the 16th century reformer, says that this idea of biblical providence to to understand um, and go beyond where the secular uh, person might kind of conceive of this idea of Christian providence, we have to understand the fatherly nature of God. We, the, the comfort comes as we recognize that the one who's governing is also our father who loves his adopted sons and daughters. If we understand biblical providence and we're genuine believers in Christ, we are meant to understand that nothing forms an absolute menace Nothing forms an absolute threat any longer, okay? We can face dangers. We can face threats and menaces, but they are never absolute anymore. There are two concepts that really flow under this, underneath this idea of providence. Those two concepts, well, the first one is that God is a sustainer. He's a preserver of the world, of the creation that he has, um, uh, he has, he has made. When we think of um, this providence, this first truth of God being a sustainer, um, well, we know that God is the creator. He created the world uh, out of nothing, the Latin ex nihilo. But beyond just creating, see, some people have the idea that, well, then after he created everything, he just kind of went and into the distance and kind of lets things uh, play out on their own. But that is not the biblical view of God. The biblical view of God is that he is intimately, intentionally active in sustaining and preserving the created world that he created. Indeed, this is a necessity Listen to just these two passages. The first one's Colossians 1, verse 17. And this is, these two passages are both referring to God the Son. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 3. He, again, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Bible tells us that God's sustaining power is necessary for the world just to continue on, 
For the, if, if God ceased to exist, the scriptures tell us the world unravels. It ceases to exist. God's sustaining work is a necessity. But then listen to how this, you know, you think about the great universe that God holds together, you know, I don't, and how he does this, this is all a mystery. But then we see how that, that sustaining power extends to the earth. It extends to our world. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You see, as the people of God begin to see that the, the, the extent of this sustaining power moves into the very details of the creatures that God has made, and he preserves them. And this leads the heavenly host, and it should lead the saints as well, to worship. Psalm 145, verse 16, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Well, he sustains his creation not only by providing for them, but by protecting them. Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. By his providence, the Lord sustains both the world and and his creatures. He provides for his creatures, and he protects his people. This should be a reminder then. No person can live an autonomous life. No, this should just be a reminder. No, we, we all, you know, we, as Americans, we're self-sufficient. We're independent. We, we can do it. We built this. Um, and, and the Bible said, no, no, no. The only, everything you have that's good is from the Lord, and it is according to his um, sustaining uh, power. Well, God not only sustains the world, but he governs it. Or better, he sovereignly rules over all that he has made. Psalm 115, verse 3, just summarizes it this way. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's in the heavens. What does that mean? Well, here's what Isaiah saw when he's able to peer, you know, he's given this vision, or maybe he's taken into um, the the heavenly place where God dwells. And this is what he sees in Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, what is the significance of seeing the Lord on a throne, high and exalted. Well, the throne is the command center. It's the command, you know, if you think of a battleship where, you know, at the center on the bridge is the, is the, the, the seat upon which the captain sits and, and everything is directed from that seat. 
Well, the Bible is telling us that the Lord is the one who sits on this command seat, on a throne. It's higher than every other throne, every other authority. Isaiah continues in chapter 46 when he says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This includes authority over the mightiest humans in the world. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You know, our leaders, they think they're so powerful. (laughs) But the Lord um, is in control. He he directs their, their ways and their paths. He raises kings up, Isaiah says. And he cast them down, all according to his wisdom and in his good time. On earth, there's nothing mightier than the great events of nature. Think the wind and rain of a hurricane. But then listen to Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. There's that language of God's sovereign power in heaven and on earth. In the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. What's the psalmist saying? That the Lord has authority. He has power over the mightiest effects of our created world, nature, the power of nature. As one theologian puts it, Quote, in no phase of the world's history is the rule of God in danger. Okay? Not during the mighty empires of the past. Not in the present where it feels like things are just erupting in uh, revolution and chaos. In the, let me read that again. In no phase of the world's history is the rule of God in danger. From the mighty rulers to the events of nature, God rules. But what about the small details? Are are they too small for God, this God who who controls the universe? Are are they just beyond his concern? Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plants his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, verse 33 a lot. That's like, a, a, like you know, throwing dice or, or pulling straws to make decisions. Um, but here's what Proverbs 16.33 says. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Not even, you know, the, 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 the casting of lots, drawing, you know, the short straw. Not even this is beyond the Lord's providential control. And Jesus uses this theme to encourage his disciples when he says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Fear not, therefore. So here's Jesus. He's saying, okay, here's a takeaway. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's Jesus saying? He's arguing that God doesn't even, even the sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the Lord's um, knowledge, apart from his will. And if he's, if he knows what's happening with the sparrows, if he's that concerned, imagine how much more will he be concerned for his people? 
Yet in spite of what the Bible teaches concerning these truths, there's a crisis when it comes to this, this biblical doctrine, this biblical truth of providence today. You know, I, I, so Romans 8, it, it, or 28, it begins this way. Paul is, is assuming, you know, it's interesting how he begins. He's appealing to this kind of universal agreement among his hearers. He, he's, he's appealing to the fact that he, he's like, I'm not saying anything new. You all know what I'm, uh, uh, that this is true when he says this. And we know, we know. It's an appeal to something that's already held and believed. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. You know, through the history of the church, there have been lots of things that denominations have disagreed about. But Roman Catholics, Protestants, Lutherans, Reformed, all of our confessions are in agreement on this point concerning the sovereign power of God expressed in providence. And yet today, we don't talk about it. There, there seems to be this discomfort. There's a, an, 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 an unease with this concept that the Lord holds, uh, the world holds everything in his hands. Well, why? Well, simply put, it seems too simple of an answer to address today's complicated, chaotic, unexplainable world. Can all the misery, can all the injustice and loss fall within the circle of divine providence? That's the question that people intuitively ask, and they answer. Can we honestly, can we say with a clear conscience, can we still subscribe to such an idea? It's it's almost, you know, almost this, this... Discussion about providence, it feels like you know, that going into a, a house where it's got the old, old wallpaper and it just, it just needs to be replaced. That's the way a lot of people approach this theme. Well, in answer to this, we have to make it clear that providence was never, it, it, um, it, it, it can never be formulated. It, it, it never arises by looking at the circumstances that are taking place in the world around us. It's not true now, and it wasn't true in the ancient world when the prophets and the apostles and when Jesus talked about God's sovereign, sustaining, and governing power over the world. At the heart of our faith is the idea that God has revealed himself, that he has revealed his truths to us um, Part of it through nature, but supremely through his word, through the the proclamation of the prophets and of the apostles, and ultimately in the sending of his own son into the world. And it's on the basis of God's self-disclosure on his special revelation. We believe we can take confidence in this truth that the Bible teaches about God's sustaining power. It's the same. What's true of providence is really the same about our belief in God in general. It never arose from the circumstances of the world. And the modern secular world has largely opted for a random world of meaningless chance. Sometimes the pendulum swings, however, to the opposite end of the spectrum, to that idea of fate, that everything's just determined. You know, that Greek idea, um, uh, what will be, will be. 
And second, the Bible understands. It understands that trying to um, square our experience of life, understanding how God could rule over all things when the world is at the same time such a mess, the Bible knows that this is a struggle. This is not a new struggle for, for modern people. The Bible knows this struggle. It raises the same question from within, whether it is the experience of the psalmist whose feet nearly slipped when he witnessed how the wicked prosper. Psalm 73. Or the example of Job. That's what, in part, Job is about. Is It's trying to reconcile the fallenness, the pain, the loss, the disappointment that we experience in the world with the reality of, a, of an omnipotent and loving God. Or consider the writer of Ecclesiastes. The Bible approaches these questions head on. When the writer to the Ecclesiastes is trying to find meaning in the world, what does he conclude when he's just looking at the world? He's looking at the circumstances. He's looking at the data. Vanity. Vanity. All is vanity. That's the conclusion of the writer of of Ecclesiastes. The Bible knows this struggle. And nevertheless, it comes back to the theme that in God um, must be our trust. When they gaze on the Lord, when they focus on his revealed word, on his promises, their faith in the Lord... And their confidence in his providence is restored. As we make our way back to Romans 8.28, we just need to note two qualifications. First, we we need to understand that when when Paul says that all things are working for good, he's not applying that indiscriminately or universally to all people. He narrows the focus, and he does this emphatically. He says that the good that God is working out has a special concern um, and focus on God's people. We know that who for those, well, who are the those? Those who love God. Well, that qualifies, that's a limiting um, statement. And he double downs on this when he just says it uh, from a different direction. He says, all things work together for good. And then here's the second phrase. For those, again, who are the those who are called according to his purpose? These are the ones that God has sovereignly called out of the world to be his own possession. Jeremiah 30 Uh, verse 11, illustrates this principle from the Old Testament. The Lord says, For I am with you, speaking to Israel, to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. He's writing during the time of the exile. But of you, I will not make a full end. God is making a distinction between his people and the rest of the world. In Daniel 2.44, we see God show his special concern for his kingdom. That kingdom has been inaugurated in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in contrast to the most powerful kingdoms of the earth. 
Daniel, in interpreting this vision of the statue with the four parts that um, the, the great king Nebuchadnezzar has, he concludes that interpretation with these words in Daniel 2.44. He says this, And in the days of those kings, these, these world empires, in the days of, the, of those kings, the God of heaven will sit, set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, what is Daniel saying here? In interpreting this vision of the king, he's saying, look, there's a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of the earth. It's not like the great empires that come one after the other, one destroying the, the, the kingdom that came prior. And then, you know, you, you see these peoples being gathered into kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. That is not the kingdom that this rock, it's a reference to the Messiah, to Christ. This rock indeed will spread throughout the earth, Daniel says. This messianic kingdom. And that kingdom will not be like the kingdom of the peoples of the world. This is a kingdom that will endure to the end. It will endure indeed into the world that is yet to come for all eternity. And then the second qualifier, what is the good? God is saying he works um, all things for good. Well, we need to find what, what... what does the, the apostle mean when he's talking about working all things for the good? What does that good look like? Our temptation is to say, well, here's the good looks like a prosperous, successful life. <laughs> the good is, you know, we'll, we'll all be well off and at ease. We'll all enjoy great health and, and, and just the, the most wonderful relationships. That's not how the apostle is defining the good. And this is where verse 29 comes into play because the apostle returns to this concept of what he has in mind uh, for the people of God. And there we just read this. For those whom he, the Lord, foreknew, he also predestined for what purpose? Well, here it is. To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good he has in mind may in fact be the opposite of getting rich. (laughs) The good he has in mind is using all the things at his disposal to, 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 to cultivate our souls, to cultivate our, our nature, to make us look and, and sound and, 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 and appear to be more like Christ in all of his beauty and all of his nobility and all the ways in which he pleased and brought glory to the Father. This is what the Lord is at work in doing within us. And very often, in order to accomplish that good, he often brings trials and difficulties into our life so that we would grow in beauty and the nobility of the image of God, of the image of Christ. And as we're conformed into his his image, we begin to lead these fruitful lives that are a blessing, not only to those who are near and close to us, but to the surrounding world as well. 
Well, if you saw the title, this is the first of second of two parts. And so I'm going to bring it to an end here. But let me just summarize what I've said. Providence means that God is in control over the affairs of the world and the details of my life. He is working all things for his glory and our good. And therefore, we should live with confidence that God is in control, not Satan, not the world. God will supply our needs, and we should live with hope because God is building his church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Therefore, we should live with humility and thankfulness because all good things are from the Lord. It also means this. We can take comfort because of the direction, because the author is, um, he is using all things for a purpose. That means there is meaning, even in the things that don't appear to have any meaning whatsoever. But part of our Christian faith is, when it's all said and done, we'll be able to look back and we'll just say, wow, Lord, the story that you wrote is the most amazing beautiful, redemptive story ever written. Well, we'll come back to this theme next time. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, you know the tasks that await us, the temptations that may confront us, and the weakness of all of our endeavors. Lord, protect us, guide us, that in all places and events we may find ourselves surrounded by your power and your love. And in your service, may we know the joy of true living and always grow into the likeness of the perfect Savior, your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.